because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. For today, we have a special guest. His name is Jeffrey Thane. Jeffrey Thane is the author of a book called Who is Truth? But most importantly, Jeffrey is a father, and his kids mean everything to him. And a lot of the research that he's done is with the intent that he may be able to help his kids with any future struggles that they might be having. Thank you so much for being on, Jeffrey. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you have this book that it's amazing. Um, It's called Who's Truth? What are some of the inspirations behind you writing this book? Oh, that is a fantastic question. That is an excellent question. Um, I I have to say that the the book actually started out as a single chapter of another book that we haven't yet finished and probably won't for a number of years yet, a book on the Latter-day Saint perspectives in the psychology. And um, as part of that book, we were, we were writing a chapter on the differences between Greek and Hebrew thought and the, and the, the insight that, bring, that, 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 that each um, approach brings to bear on how we understand ourselves as people. For example, um, Greek thought tends to see, uh, uh, define things and people by what is unchanging about them, whereas Hebrew thought tends to define things by what they do. Um, and now this is a very oversimplified version of it, but we were kind of running with this in our Latter-day Saint Perspectives in Psychology book that we're writing, um, trying to explore how a, a different, different ways of understanding people are, are um, is who we are bound up in unchanging characteristics about ourselves, or is who we are bound up in our choices and our activities? And can we change who we are by changing how we approach the world and, 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 and the kinds of things that we do? Um, in other words, what does repentance have to do with the, our, the possi- our, our possibilities in, in terms of our personal identities, and, wh- and, how can, and how can we bring that to bear in our understanding of psychology? Well, long story short, while we were writing this chapter, I had a number of friends who left the faith or departed down strange roads within the faith, at least, right? And, and, and I also noticed a number of friends who were, in my mind, elevating various political ideologies over simple discipleship, or at least what it seemed like to me at the time, where they would, um, and, 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 it, and, it, and it came down, it, it seemed like it always came down to the assumption that there is this abstract universal truth out there that we can detect through human reason and observation. And we need to, ev- and, and, and this assumption that we need to evaluate everything the church teaches, everything prophets say against our understanding of this universal truth that We've, 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 we've arrived at through our own um, um, observation and, ra- and, and rational analysis. And, and I realized that that's never how I understood the gospel, and nor is that how I understand truth. Because, 
for me, the gospel is all about our relationship with a divine being, a person. And our quest for, our quest, our journey, the purpose, the reason why we came to this earth is not to somehow uncover the abstract mysteries of the universe and marvel at their intellectual elegance, but rather to make and keep sacred covenants with God. And those sacred covenants with God transcend every other thing in our lives, whether it be politics, whether it be philosophy, whether it be ideology, all other things fall, fall into the background when it comes to our covenants with God. And I realized that this, this distinction between Greek and Hebrew thought provided a sort of framework for articulating that core insight. And so that's how this book was born. That's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so with that, how so this idea we have, we have person truth, which is, I guess, how would you describe person truth? And then how would you describe this, this idea truth concept? Yeah, then, absolutely. Yeah. How do you explain those? And then how can, ha- how, um, how is having a person idea of truth? How can that be helpful for struggling with doubts or with questions right now? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> that last question you asked is actually three fourths of my book. So, you know, okay. <laughs> you might have to break that up a little bit, but, but yeah, so the distinction between person truth and idea truth. Well, to start with, I'll just say that we, um, um, we start the book with an assumption and a bold, a bold assumption, a bold assertion, right? When Christ was asked, how can we know the way? Um, he responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And most of us kind of take this as metaphor, kind of similar in style and rhetoric to when he said, I am the bread, or I am the living waters, or I am the, you know, where the host of metaphors that we use to talk about Christ, right? And a lot of us take, you know, this, this statement by Christ to be something like a metaphor, you know? And, and, our, and our assertion here, or our assumption, our premise is, what if we take this literally instead of metaphorically? What happens if we understand Christ to be the truth, rather than merely someone who teaches truth or someone who knows the truth? How did this change how we understand truth generally? And um, and so and and with this, we 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 we, we draw uh, this distinction from from um, work done by. And I want, I want to give them credit here because they are absolutely wonderful and, um, and we are heavily inspired by what, by, by, by what they've done. Um, the, the, they're Brent Slife and Jeffrey Reber. Brent Slife and Jeff Reber. They were both professors at BYU when I was there. Um, and they have both written on this subject, distinguishing, and they distinguish between what they consider to be Christian truth and secular truth. What are the attributes of Christian truth? And how do we understand Christian truth and how do we distinguish it from secular truth? And we took that distinction that they did it and kind of made it the, the foundation for our book. And we took it and we just sort of ran with it in an apologetic context. Um, how does our apologetics change? How does it look different if we take this distinction and, 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 and run it to its ultimate conclusions? So, and that's where we came up with the idea of person truth and idea truth. Person truth is... Um, Christ. An idea truth is a set of ideas. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a handful of distinctions we can make. Like, first of all, for example, idea truth is abstract. Um, it's an abstraction. You can't taste, touch, hear, or smell the Pythagorean theorem, which is an example of idea truth. But you can touch 
the living, resurrected Christ. And in fact, he invited many, many to do so. And you, you can embrace him, and you can even talk with him, and he can weep with you and relate with you and ask you questions, and you can ask him questions. And so while idea truth is abstract, person truth is concrete. It's something that you can encounter in the world in the way that you can't the abstract notions of Greek truth. And, um, and furthermore, idea truth is universal. We or, or the idea that the, the Greek, the fundamental Greek assumption is that things that do not change across space or time are more important, more relevant, more fundamental, more true than things that do change across space or time. And we, we contrasted that in the, in the book with Christ, who is a person, who is a moral agent, who can come to this earth, be born, grow and learn from grace to grace, from truth to truth. Um, and then um, live, die, and be resurrected. He is a being of change, um, a development of growth, and and furthermore, we we, we kind of use this to set the context for why, or or, or, or or for why sometimes the instruction that God had given to mankind may have changed from time to time. We um, the 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 moral codes that we live by today resemble fairly closely the moral codes that the ancient Israelites lived by, but there are also some key differences. For example, if they didn't eat pork, we do. For example, um, um, And that's just one of many examples. And so the particulars of the commandments of God might vary from dispensation to dispensation. At one time, God might command polygamy, and another time, he might rescind that commandment. And from a Greek perspective, there must always be some sort of, some more fundamental underlying rule that makes sense of all of that. But in our studies of the differences between Greek and Hebrew thought, we realized that the Hebrew perspective doesn't necessarily require that. All it requires is that it comes from God. And so, so the instructions that come from God might be different from time to time, but we can trust them if we know them to be coming from divine sources through divinely called individuals and so forth. And I'll just and I'll just briefly touch on some of the other uh, distinctions that we make. One one is that. Um, Idea truth is passive. Um, the Pythagorean theorem doesn't come looking for you. Um, if, if, if we know it, it's because we've discovered it. We went out looking for it. Whereas idea, person truth is active. God can come looking for us. And yes, there are things that we can do to make ourselves more receptive to God. But God crosses over that through the threshold at the door just as readily and just as eagerly as we invite him in. He is active. And so there's some there's tremendous power in imagining in our quest for truth of a truth that is also questing for us. A truth that also wants to bring us into his fold. Um, a truth with whom we can make commitments and who keeps his promises and so forth. And um, finally, um, I think that, and I think that's really the key of it, is that the um, person truth is a being with whom we can form a relationship, a covenant relationship, whereas idea truth is merely a set of ideas passively waiting. And so we started to take this, we decided to take this into an apologetic context. What is faith? What is religion, for, for example? Is religion a set of abstract doctrines, a set of beliefs, abstract ideas? Are we, is the goal, in, in the, in, as, as we come to better understand our faith, 
Are we collecting a series of, um, of doctrines that we mentally ascend to? Or are we questing for a person and making covenants with a person and seeking to know that divine, divine person of God more fully and completely and seeking to represent him in our lives more, uh, more thoroughly in everything that we do? And, and, and that distinction in our mind changed how we think about everything else. I think that's powerful. I, I love the idea of, are we seeking to know abstract concepts or are we seeking to know God? There's a part of your book that really stood out to me where there's a man that's in an interview and the interviewer is asking him these different questions about, about Jesus Christ, about what he knows about Jesus Christ. And the man that's being interviewed keeps, um, answering this man and he's giving him the right answers but the interviewer clearly isn't satisfied um and then i think that man walks out of the interview then another man walks into the interview and that man bows down and says something along the lines of my lord my god and i that kind of for me was really touching is if i was faced with the savior would i know him would I recognize him or would I just know things about him? So that was something that was really powerful for me as I read your book. Right. And I think, and, and, and I really like the distinction in the other languages, the other languages, other languages might, some other languages have. Like in um, Spanish, we have a distinction between saber and conocer. And I don't really know, um, I'm, not, I'm not fluent in Spanish by any means, but I do know that you know, saber, this, this, this is, refers to a kind of knowing where we know abstract ideas. I know the I know the, my multiplication tables. I know my hit facts about history or doctrines or so forth, right? And Kono said is more of a familiarity with a person. And for me, what matters to me, I think what matters to all of us is not that we know about truth, but that we know truth and that we are in a relationship with him. Awesome. I, I love that. So now I kind of want to talk about a few of the, the concepts that are in different chapters of your book. Um, so one of the chapters mentions knowing person truth through covenant. Can you elaborate, elaborate a little bit more on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we think about it, like typically speaking, we, um, we, when we talk about truth, we talk about reason and observation as key, uh, um, epistemological frameworks for understanding truth. We think our way to truth. We observe our way to truth by detecting patterns in our experiences in the natural world and so forth. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is that um, one of the key features of person truth is that unlike idea truth, person truth is a revealed truth. You can't think your way to person truth. If um, And I really like this quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, when you come to know God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you do will enable you to find him. And what that tells me is that the initiative of God is, is an essential um, is essential to understanding truth from a person point of view. And furthermore, because God is a person, we can make commitments, we can make promises to him. And I think and I and I and I, really, and I, th- I like to think about it like almost like a marriage, right? And in marriage, we're comfortable with the idea that there are disclosures that don't happen until after we've made sacred commitments, pledges of fidelity. And the, the, the same is actually true of God. 
There are, there are ways in which we can come to know God, truths that we can know about him, that we cannot know, that we cannot grasp, that we cannot obtain, unless until we've made pledges of fidelity to him and have, and, and have demonstrated our willingness to keep those pledges. And that's why I think, for example, the um, um, person view of truth in some ways um, helps clarify the nature of the temple and the temple ordinances. Why, for example, don't we just, if, you know, if we learn truths in the temple, why don't we just broadcast those truths to the world? You know, um, kind of like um, um, the, the, sorry, uh, Arch Archimedes, who was running down the street naked saying, Eureka, Eureka, I've got it, I've got it, after, after his um, um, insight, where he, you know, uh, where he learns how to uh, um, figure out the, the, the mass of an object based on its volume while he was in the bathtub. And he had this idea and he realized this is, a, this is an excellent idea and he wants to share it with the world. Well, why don't we do that with the truth in the temple? Why can't we just broadcast everything we do there to the world? You know, if, if, if truth is so important. And, the, and, and I think that the distinction between idea truth and person truth really helped clarify for me the idea, the, the, the idea of sacred truth. The idea of truths that require covenants for us to truly understand and to grasp, and what, and, that, and that might be why a little, or a, a little bit uh, give, give me a little bit of insight when, why we have um, how should we say um, ord ordinances that we don't broadcast to the world. Yeah, I love that. I love those concepts. Um, I think sometimes when we talk in the church, it seems like sacred is just like a synonym for secret at times but as i was reading this book kind of how our relationship with christ is oftentimes um in the scriptures compared to marriage and how there are sacred things in a marriage that aren't shared with people i think it makes a lot of sense if we're viewing things from a person truth perspective that there are certain things between god that are sacred and shouldn't be shared with the world not until we have that certain level of intimacy with him. Um, the next concept I wanted to talk about is from this person view of truth, what does it mean to be an authority on truth? Absolutely. Yeah. So from, well, I'll start with the conventional view. Um, in the conventional view of truth, we are an authority on truth or someone is an authority on truth when they've gained their expertise in the way that is publicly dem demonstrable and replicable by others. In other words, that um, if I'm going to be a scientist and I'm going to be an authority, my methods must be open to public scrutiny and others must be able to replicate. And it, it hardly even matters that others do replicate. The fact that they must be able to replicate my methods is essential for me to be a genuine authority in secular truth. And furthermore, the idea of an, uh, 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 um, an authority on secular truth uh, uh, or a, the conventional truth or idea truth, um, they must contribute to expert consensus. You know, if you have a, if you have a bunch of experts, you know, completely diverging in their understanding of uh, of truth, that's the sign that somehow your your methods have gone awry, right? Um, and and it's also it also, it also casts doubt on the veracity of all of them to some degree or another. If if you have, for example, a bunch of um, physical scientists who are all coming at wild, to wildly different conclusions, you know, there's, there's a sense in which we, we take that to be a problem. Um, and, we, and we hope that 
if the methods of science are working and they're doing that they, that they should, that these that, that researchers within the scientific community are approaching consensus in some way. Now, if truth is a person, then that changes all of our assumptions. It turns everything upside down because it is entirely possible for the person of God to commission a messenger to come down as he did, for example, to Joseph Smith in the Grover Trees in upstate New York and reveal truths to him in ways that aren't, public, aren't publicly recordable. I mean, yes, we, we, we do tell the world that if you go out and pray, God will reveal these truths to you. But that doesn't mean that, it, that if you recreate Joseph Smith's footsteps into the grove and, 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 and state his same, the same words that he prayed, that you're going to have the same vision he has. Um, in short, if we take the idea of Christ as a truth made flesh seriously, we, ought, we could also take the idea of prophets seriously, commissioned messengers from God. And that's, also, that's, that's quite frankly something that secular truth doesn't really make possible. There's nothing about our understanding of science or mathematics that, 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 that makes sense of the possibility of sages and, or, or, or prophets who, with, with privileged access to the divine. But idea truth, or not, but idea, not, not idea truth, but person truth, does, does, does make sense of that idea. I love that. Um, the next concept I wanted to go over is what is sin according oh. to this person view of truth? Yeah, absolutely. So we often think of sin as violating an abstract rule. Like there's some sort of rule built into the fabric of the universe, for example, that says thou shalt not lie. And when you lie, you violated that rule and, and, and now justice must be done, for example. That's why we need the atonement or something like that. And as, as I've explored these ideas and as I've read the study through the scriptures, I've come to the understanding that sin is something fundamentally different than that. While it's, it's often true that we use abstract rules to sort of approximate God's divine instructions to us, I, I've come to see sin as literally anything that separates and alienates me from my creator. I've come to see sin in fundamentally relational terms. I am striving for relationship with, relationship with God, and anything that jeopardizes that, anything that undermines that or alienates me from God, is something that I consider to be sin to some degree or another. And, um, and what this means is that I don't have to figure out what the abstract rule is in order to justify my claims, for example, that drinking coffee is a sin. All I need to know is that God, through his chosen servants, have asked me not to, and therefore it is. But this also means that if the Spirit prompts me to read my scriptures and I don't, that's also sin. Or if the Spirit prompts me to call a friend, I don't, and I don't, that's also sin. Or, you know, if, um, if I know in my heart of hearts that a particular PG-13 movie is going to um, drive away the spirit and I watch it, that's also sin. Even if I can't necessarily articulate a universal rule or, categ- or a categorical imperative that, um, that I can reduce these things down to, um, um, anything that separates me from God, that alienates the spirit, can be considered sinful from this point of view. And I like to use this analogy. Imagine that a friend um, lied to you about something that was really important, betrayed your trust. And you, um, 
and you were really hurt. And later the friend comes to you and says, you know, in the past few weeks, I've been studying ethics and I've learned that there is a rule against lying and I broke that rule. I'm sorry. My question for people sometimes is, would, is, would you consider that to be a sincere or genuine policy, uh, apology? And many people will kind of, kind of chuckle at the thoughts, like kind of, I guess, maybe, sort of. And then I contrast it with this. I said, what if your friend comes to you and says, you know, I violated your trust. I betrayed you on something that was important to you and, and, and have estranged strained our relationship. I'm sorry that I hurt you. What can I do to make it right? And most people will agree that the second apology is far more genuine, far more sincere, far more true to the nature of the problem than the first. And that's kind of how I see sin and repentance, for example. It's not about violating abstract rules and bringing ourselves into compliance with abstract rules. It's about alienating ourselves from, alienating ourselves from God and seeking reconciliation with him. It's about our relationship with a person. I think it's really easy to get caught up kind of in a checklist mentality with the gospel. And I think a lot of the time that's not the most healthy way to live the gospel. And I think this way it's, if, if we just look to Christ, I think a lot of the time we naturally do the right thing and naturally we will keep a lot of these different, these different rules and such. I love, I love the idea. I love the analogy that you used about kind of asking for forgiveness of a friend um, the next concept I wanted to go over and is the atonement. How, how can we think of the atonement from this perspective? Absolutely. And, and we kind of hinted on, on this um, already a little bit, but if sin is, um, a st- or, 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 or if our sinful ways represent a strained relationship with God, then our, our goal is to reconcile with him. And sometimes we think of the atonement in, in very abstract or legalistic terms. We have violated some abstract rule. Recompense must be made. Christ makes that recompense on our behalf, making it possible for us to return to live with God. And over time, I've come to, I don't really see God as this sort of, this sort of um, cosmic judge in that sort of way. You know, I, don't think, I don't think that that's quite how it works. Sometimes I like to think about it like, um, the, the, well, the way, the way I think about it, that the purpose of the atonement is largely, in my mind, to make it possible for us to, re- to repent and to change and thereby bring ourselves into reconciliation with God. That's the purpose of the atonement. It is God's condescension to the world coming down, coming to, and so it's not just a single event. The atonement didn't just happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. It didn't just happen in the cross. It happened in the entire life of our Savior Jesus Christ, where he condescended to earth, was born, lived as we did, learned as we did, and came to know us, to know our experiences, and to thereby know how to succor us, as we read in the Book of Mormon, um, in Alma chapter 7, and and thereby um, give us the tools that we need to change and become different. And the suffering in Gethsemane, his, his death on the cross, are crucial in that process. And for ways that I don't always fully understand. But I see this as the um, God's attempt to reach us, to change us. To um, I think about this, for example, as um, I like the, in the book, we, we use this as, uh, 
Here, let me pull this. I'm opening the book right now to pull this open because I think it's useful. So imagine, for example, a son who alienates himself, alienates himself from his father, from his family, by wronging them in tremendous ways, stealing the money and things from their home to um, um, feed his drug habit, for example. And eventually he's kicked out of the house because they cannot sustain his habits. He cannot live as he's living and be with them in their family, so to speak. And he finds himself in a homeless shelter. The son finds himself in a homeless shelter, uh, alienated from God, deprived of his family, in, in the thralls of sin and addiction and so forth. And as he's laying there on the cot in the homeless shelter, who shows up but his father to come and sleep on the cot next to him? And he, the father says, I am here and I've come to be with you, to dwell with you, because I want you to be able to come back and dwell with us. And so the father is there walking with the son throughout his entire journey of recovery in order to help his son change in order to, so that he can once again rejoin the family. And that's kind of how I see the atonement of Jesus Christ, the condescension of God, the process by which he comes to earth in order to dwell with us so that we can one day again dwell with him, so that he can know how to help us change his people and walk that walk that we need to of repentance so we can become godly beings once more through the atonement of Christ and his grace. I love that. I love how you you really go in depth about the idea of Christ running to us. That's, just, that's what the word soccer means. It means to run to. Um, a few weeks ago, we released a, an interview with Dusty Smith, who at one time in his life, he wasn't living as he should have. He was actively attacking the church, but the Lord was actively reaching his hand out to this man. And I think the Lord does that to people. Um, is there any other concepts from your book that you want to talk about right now? Yeah, I mean, I'll just share one more. Um, in one of the earlier chapters, we, come, we, we, we really talk about the role that um, ideology sometimes play in our lives. And, 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 this is one, and this is one of the things that uh, kind of led to the writing of this book, is where I saw so many people, some friends of mine, close friends even, who, who seem to place their political or philo philosophical ideology over their discipleship. And that's one of the motivations that I, that I had for writing this. And I think this is particularly relevant in this part in this year, where we see a particularly divided political landscape in, in America right now, where you see more than, more than we've had in our lifetimes, um, people who, a uh, 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 very, very intense contention and, politi and, and political differences that are being aired out in national prime time. And I see that there's a lot, it's very, very easy to get caught up in various partisan politics and to let those partisan politics overwhelm our discipleship. And in, and, and in part because we like to think that, you know, what, whatever our political commitments are, we, we, we think of those, or those political ideas, the political ideals as, as the ultimate truth the, of, of how government should behave, how we should behave and so forth. And I, and, I, and I really think that you know, um, God has a habit of challenging our deepest and our most core political and ideological commitments. And, and I think he sometimes delights in doing so. And I, and I like the, um, I, 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 I think about sometimes the Israelites who were 
um, traveling in the desert, right? And they were bitten by serpents. And the God instructed Moses to create a brazen serpent and put it on a staff and tell the, tell the people that anyone who looks at this might live. And, and the take the slant that we put on, on the story, and, I, and, and I'm not entirely certain if this is the actually, you know, this is actually historically true or not. But w- I, the way I like to think about it is that God was in some sense challenging the ideological pre- uh, um, commitments of the Israelites, who had been told a number of years earlier that they shall they shall not make idols nor worship idols. And here is Moses putting up a serpent on a staff, a graven image, literally. And telling the people to look to it so that they might live. What God was doing is he was inviting them. Uh, he was testing them to see if they would um, elevate the abstract law over the lawgiver himself. And I think that God sometimes does that for us. Where we, we think we've got it all figured out. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. But God will come along and say, well, here's, some, here's a different approach to take. Here's what I need you to do right now. And it will sometimes, it will sometimes violate our deepest, uh, our deepest political commitments. And I think that's by, divi- by divine design. Thank you for that. So I guess um, so those are like kind of some, some insights from your book that I think I definitely recommend your book to any of our listeners. It's called Who is Truth? Um, but I also wanted to get your thoughts on as we're talking, there's probably a lot of people listening that are struggling with the church right now, and they they have doubts and they have questions right now. What kind of advice would you give to these people? The the the, 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 the probably the first piece of advice I would give is don't give up. Many have been where they are. Many have been where you are, and they have found their way through. Do not give up. There is light at the end of the tunnel. You might be living in a fog right now. The mist of darkness might be, might, might be clouding your eyes. You might not be able to see your way forward. You might not be able to see anything at all very clearly. And that, because that's what the adversary will does to all of us at some point in our lives. That's entirely normal as part of our faith process. But rest assured that if you reach out, the iron rod is there. We have the scriptures. We have commissioned servants of God. And I can testify that they teach truth. And then the second thing that I can um, I, uh, that, that I recommend is to re-examine your questions. To re-examine your questions. And I think that is a vitally important facet to all of this. Um, there we are. So, you know, I know lots of people who have lots of questions. And I think that sometimes the questions we ask don't have answers because they are founded on the wrong premises. A little bit like asking, where is the corner of a round room? Where's the corner? Where's the corner? And and and, and being frustrated when nobody has an answer for you, where the corner is. And and sometimes we don't take it, we don't, we don't, we don't take a moment to take a step back and, and challenge the premises of our questions themselves. Like for example, some people I have I know people who are having a faith crisis because and and, there, and their simple question is why does the church emphasize backwards and outdated beliefs on gender and marriage? I know people who ask, you know, if the temple teaches truth, why do we broadcast that to the world? Like we talked about earlier today, you know, or if prophets teach truth, why did earlier prophets teach things that are disavowed by current prophets? How is that even possible, right? 
And these are all the, these, and, and, and in some ways, some of these questions have answers, some of them might not, because some of them are like asking for where the corner of a round room is. And I think that if we change our questions, if we challenge the premise of our questions and ask different questions instead, we'll find ourselves connecting with God on a, in a totally different way. And when God manifests himself in our lives, we will find some of our other questions just cease to become important. They cease to be issues entirely. And for example, I think of the questions that people ask in the scriptures. Um, Lord, whither shall I go that I might find ore the molten, that I might make tools to construct a ship after the manner in which thou hast shown me? It's an entirely different sort of question. Or the question that was asked by um, um, the Lamanite king, what shall I do that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken? Yea, what shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast, and receive his spirit, that I may be filled with joy, that I might not be cast off at the last day? I think about questions that, that I've received answers to in my life. Questions like, how can I be a better spouse? How can I invite your hand, God, into my marriage? How can I serve you better in my family responsibilities, my church responsibilities? You know, how can I find opportunities to serve others today? And as I asked those sorts of questions, I experienced God's hand in my life. When I ask God things like, why did you institute polygamy? You know, I don't always get an immediate answer. I don't always get answer at all. Sometimes I don't get answers to those questions. But when I ask God, how can I be a better husband? I always get an answer to that question. And as I ask those sorts of questions, this, the kind of, the, those, those spiritual experiences I have with God, those encounters start to stack until they, until they have the weight of a testimony, a testimony that cannot be shaken. I know that God is real. I know that he is involved in my life because I have had thousands of experiences of him answering prayers with questions just like this. And, and I think that, so, so your question, what, what, what advice would I give to someone who is struggling with their faith, who has questions they can't seem to find answers to? I would say that's okay to have those questions. What I would recommend, what I would suggest is that they start asking questions that God is willing and ready to answer right now. Like, how, what can I do to serve others today? And then with those, start building up a reservoir of spiritual experiences and spiritual encounters with God that, um, that will keep you anchored in his, in, in his restored church. I think that's really powerful. I had a mission companion that he would write his various spiritual experiences down in his journal so that later in life, if he was ever struggling with his testimony, he could look down at that journal and see that list of ways that he'd seen God's hand. So I think there's a lot of power in that. Um, before the interview, I was, I was looking at something you, you had wrote online. I wanted to just kind of point out some suggestions you got on here that I thought were kind of powerful. Um, on an article you wrote called Three Ways to Fortify Our Faith Against Times of Doubt, Something that like kind of later in the article you wrote that I thought was really fascinating is you mentioned that um, you mentioned a pitfall and one of the pitfalls was we give more time to popular entertainment and other sources than we do the word and work of God. I thought that was really fascinating. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that is who we are 
is what we eat. Now, what I mean by that is that um, the kinds of questions that are going to um, overtake our attention, our mind, our lives, really depends on the kind, the, the, the kinds of content that we consume. Like we we start to take on the image of that which we give the most time. So, for example, if um, if I give two or three hour, hours of my day to talk radio with Sean Hannity, I am going, you know, I, th- you know, I, I think it'd be totally natural that over a course of a year or two or three, that I'm going to take on the face of Sean Hannity, like metaphorically speaking, right? I'm going to start to see the world that he sees the world. I'm going to start to um, understand things the way he understands things. And in fact, every time I look at the news, every time I, look, I go to church, I'm going to start, I'm going to start evaluating things against or uh, 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 whether and how he is going to do, uh, what, uh, what he's going to say about it, for, for example. And I've seen this happen in my life at various times where I've given attention to uh, non-divine sources and watch how those non-divine sources start to shape my worldview in surprising ways. If we spend, if we give, you know, uh, an hour or two of our day to the latest sitcoms, right? The, 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 moral, um, the moral worldviews advanced or assumed by the characters in those shows are going to influence how we see the world in ways that we might not fully detect or understand. But if we give an hour a day, I'm not saying we have to, but if, if we give the, mo- the bulk of our time to Christ, to studying his word, the words of scripture, the words of his servants, and, 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 and um, in service to him, that becomes the image that we take upon ourselves. We start to take upon ourselves the image of Christ. We take upon ourselves the image of that which we give the most time. And so I think that um, when, it, you know, the, in answer to your question, um, when I see people who find themselves leaving the church or in the thralls of doubt, I very, I will very often, not always, but often observe that they are giving tremendous amounts of time to non-divine, to non-divine sources. Um, and those non-divine sources can simply be, you know, ordinarily benign things, you know, like, 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 like sitcoms that we all love and love and enjoy. But if we aren't offsetting with divine sources, like the scriptures, those things start to overtake our, our, our particular moral worldviews. I think that's really enlightening. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, before we end the interview, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? I'm not at this point, but thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. I really do. Uh, I guess actually, no, I'll say one, I'll say one more thing. That simply is that I know that Jesus Christ lives. And I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored church. It is the Church of Christ. And I know that the men and women who lead it really are the commissioned servants of God. And I have a stack, a tremendous stack of spiritually defining moments in my life, encounters with God uh, that, that have led me to that conclusion. And I think it's possible, for, and I think it is possible for others, for anyone, to obtain spiritual encounters with God in a similar manner. And I think, but I think what it requires is that we ask questions that God is willing to answer right now. Questions about how we can serve him, questions about how we can be reconciled with him on a day-to-day basis. And that's how we build our testimony. Not by, now 
think sources like Fair Mormon provides very, very, very good resources for for you know for those with questions about history or doctrine and so forth. There, um, there, are, there's a number of resources out there. Book Mormon Central will provide, provide tremendous resources for understanding the Book of Mormon and answering questions about the Book of Mormon. But ultimately, our testimony is not found in any of that. Our testimony is found in our daily encounters with God, and I think that's what we should all be seeking and working on. Thank you so much for being on, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.